Kia ora koutou, I'm Teresa Cowie and welcome to Insight. This week, a day at the drug courts. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. The alcohol and other drug treatment courts have been run as a pilot for the past six years to see if funnelling drug-addicted criminals away from prison and into intensive rehab can stop their reoffending long-term. Initial figures from the court's judges suggest it's so far saved about $16 million by keeping people out of jail. And the government will decide next year whether it should be made a permanent part of the New Zealand court system. For this programme, I visited the drug court in Auckland to find out how it works and if it's worth the money to keep it going. And just to note, some names have been changed to protect people's identities. It's just after 8 o'clock on a Thursday morning at the Auckland District Court and people in their possessions are starting to make their way through security to the courtrooms. Up the escalators in courtroom 7, lawyers, drug rehab workers, a police sergeant and the pōoranga, or Māori cultural advisor, are gathering around a large U-shaped table piled high with stacks of offender files. The thickness of some of the files suggests their subjects have a long history of trouble with the law. When a knock's heard on an internal door of the courtroom, all rise for the entrance of Her Honour, Judge Emma Aitken. Welcome again. A waiata is sung and there's a karakia before work begins in the court, known as Te Whare Whakapiki Wairua, or the house that heals the spirit. When the judge is seated at the table with the others, most of the usual courtroom formalities disappear, although no one seems to ever deviate from addressing her as your honour or man. This is the pre-court session of the Alcohol and Other Drugs Treatment Court, where the team of people charged with getting drug-addicted offenders' lives back on track meet to go over their treatment plans and progress as well as deciding who's getting in and who might be thrown out of the court programme today. I will just briefly uh, summarise uh, your client's uh, background because he's applying uh, today to come into uh, the drug court. Once I've summarised, I'll just invite the team to express their various views. So team, uh, this young man is 32 years old. The drug courts were started by Judge Emma Aitken, who's based in central Auckland, and Judge Lisa Tremuin in Waitakere. Up to 100 people can be in the programme at any one time, 50 at each site. He is before the court for eight charges. There's no defended hearing for the offender. To get in, they have to plead guilty and show it's alcohol or drug dependency that's driving their crime. They also can't be facing a sentence any longer than three years, all that involves serious violence, sexual offending or arson. And importantly, they have to convince the court that they're ready to make a permanent change to their lives. But the sentence they would be serving is always hanging over them. If they constantly relapse, fail to meet their rehab commitments or reoffend, it's back inside. This is relatively serious offending. It is an escalation in his offending. Once in the drug court, the word offender is dropped, though, and those accepted into the court are known as participants. 
This type of court is aimed at hardcore repeat offenders with drug and alcohol addictions, and it's already been successful in parts of the United States. Judge Aitken explains why she and her colleague Judge Tremuin wanted them trialled here. A district court judge will probably will sentence hundreds, literally hundreds of people a year. And in that time, uh, within a fairly short period of time, if you sit in the same court, you start to see the same faces coming back before you. You have regard to criminal histories that reflect offending, imprisonment, release, offending, imprisonment, release. And you start to ask yourself as a judge, you know, is this how I'm going to spend the rest of my judicial career, imprisoning people over and over? Again, One repeat offender Judge Aitken is hopeful of never seeing in the dock again is Mike. In my addiction, you know, I lost my mana, I lost my wairua, I lost everything you can think, I lost my soul. I had nothing left there. All I ever knew was one thing, steel, rob, drugs, jail. On the day I visit, the main drug court session is starting with his graduation ceremony. Right, um, firstly, I want to start by saying how honoured and a privilege I feel standing here today at graduating the area at DTC. Mm. I feel I've, I have made a breakthrough my life needed and I put a stop to the vicious cycle of a jail and active addiction. Today I choose to do things differently and I am on the recovery walker with my mind, a body and soul. Mm. My journey through the drug court has not been perfect, but each mistake I have made has helped me to grow into the man I am today. I feel proud of who I am now, and I'm excited about what the future holds. Mike has spent more than 20 of his 39 years in and out of prison. He hasn't kept track of his long list of offences, but what he does know is that they were all either while he was on drugs or because he was trying to sell them or get hold of them. He says his criminal behaviour is deeply ingrained. I grew up in um, Otara. Uh, my father was a Mongol Mob member, um, so I sort of I grew up in that violent, a domestic, a violent upbringing, you know, um, the area where I actually I grew up was um, hev- heavily into a crime, you know, like all my friends down the street, we all done a crime in there as well. And, um, like so many so who have passed in front of Judge Aitken, jail was no deterrent to him. It was just part of life. What I worked out now is that um, all the jail time that I have done, it was such a norm to me. I don't mind going back to jail, you know what I mean? Uh, because I could just go back there and, and, and I easily adapt because it was just a world that I've known for a very long time. As soon as I got a court, it wasn't a thing. I, you know, I could go straight back and I'd sleep for three days because I had been up way too long out on the outside. I'd sleep for three days, I'd get up, I'm into my routine. A porridge in the morning, a training in the morning, a training in the afternoon. You know, that, that was a normal um, thing for in there. And like I said, when I went back to jail, it's the same uh, people as when I was 16. So, you know, I went back in at 37, 38, you know, I'd go back in, it's my same mates from, mm-hmm. you know, which were not even mates, they were actually just uh, co-offenders. So no deterrent at all for you? No. Nah. A homecoming, if anything? Yeah, a homecoming, that's right. Like, I never had any fear of going back to jail, because every time I knew I was wanted, um, I'd go harder. 
know, okay, I want it from the cops. So I'd go harder on the crime, harder on the drugs, because I knew sooner or later I'd get caught. But that's okay. In my head, that's okay because a jail's nothing to me. Mike says at the time his focus was just getting in and getting out so he could get more drugs. It's not been a smooth run leading up to his graduation today. He's been in the court before and was kicked out for trying to cheat a drug test with a sample of someone else's urine. At the time, he saw the drug court as an easy option that would cut out a stay in jail and get him back to partying and crime sooner. But when Mike went back to prison after being exited from the drug court, it started to dawn on him that maybe he could change. I got arrested, you know, and I, I remember getting locked up on this leg and me sitting inside thinking to myself, is this going to be my life for the rest of my life? Because my uncles are in there, my dad's brothers are in there, my dad's, my cousins, my uncles, they're all in there doing something like that. And, um, um, you know, when I walked out of my cell inside a jail, my uncle was there saying, hey, nephew, my other uncle was there hey, nephew, my cousins were there hey, cousin. And I'm looking around and thinking, is this actually going to be my life forever? And I sat there and I, um, I got on my knees and I, I prayed to God and... Um, I reapplied for the, a drug court and then they uh, turned me down. And I sat there thinking, OK, you know, what else can I, I do here? Mike started writing letters to the judge and over time managed to prove that he really was ready to change. Today he's working. He's got a job as a roading contractor spreading asphalt. I'm quite lucky because my employment, my boss is in recovery as well. So every morning when we go to work... Um, we do the reading, uh, we do the uh, just for a today reading, which is the NA reading, and then we share on our experience. And um, so he's not just a boss, he's an actual a friend as well. He's also trying to build a relationship with his children, who had to grow up without him because he was always in and out of prison. Today my whole recovery is about making amends to the people I've hurt most. My mum, my dad, my daughters my grandkids, you know, um, today I can be a present, I can show up when I can say I'm going to show up. You know, normally when I say, oh yeah, I'll be there, mum, I'll never be there. You know, with my daughters, yes, my baby, I'll be at a school trip, I was never there. You know, today um, I can say, what do you need? You know, yep, I'll be there, and I'm there, and I'm there early, you know, and um, I wouldn't have that if it wasn't for the drug court. You know, the drug court has taught me a lot about myself. Um, man, if I didn't get the second chance here, I'd, I'd probably never change, to be honest, because that that whole lifestyle is so ingrained in me. You know, I needed that whole a period of time and the support that I, I get from my case managers, the judge. You know, the, a judge is awesome. You know, we can... It's not like a normal court, you know. I, I can actually sit up there and have a conversation with her, which in a normal court you just don't say nothing and you get a sentence. You know, this one, they make you feel like you're a part of something. I'm Teresa Cowie, and you're listening to an RNZ Insight programme about New Zealand's drug courts. There's a strict one-in, one-out policy for the drug court's 100 places. With Mike's graduation over, the main court session is about to begin and there's now a new place available. Passing in front of the judge, case managers, lawyers and mentors are offenders hoping to get that place in the court.
participants already in it will be questioned about their progress or any transgressions like missing or failing a drug test or rehab session. Some may be kicked out today too. I think we've got the reading now from ESR. And I've told him that there will be a sanction. I'm told by the court's tikanga advisor, Po Oranga Rawiri Pene, that down in the holding cells underneath the court, a 32-year-old man is waiting to have his chance in front of the judge. He wants to apply to get into the drug court. drug court for... For Andy, who we're going down to see, going to prison will be a big deal. He's awaiting sentence at Mount Eden Remand Prison at the moment, and even a short stay there has been an eye-opener. Apologies for the sound quality. Andy's speaking from behind a glass screen in a secure visitor room. What was it like the first time you walked into prison? Scary, really scary. I actually got asked if I'd like to go to segregated, and um, I said no, and I went into mainstream, and I was terrified. If Andy doesn't get into the drug court, he'll be going to jail for the first time, with a likely sentence of two years. His family are not involved in drugs and crime and have mostly washed their hands of him and his lifestyle. Only his mother's still hanging in there, trying to get him help. Andy's got a $1,000 a day meth habit. He's facing eight charges for fraud, meth possession and mugging. I don't even think my family know my full charges, which is, yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty bad. Mm. Uh, my dad and brother are just shocked that I'm in this. They just can't understand how I got down this path, yeah. What about you? Can you understand it? What, um, can you make any sense of it? Yep. Um, I can because um, when I first started taking meth, it was because I was lonely and there was this kind of group that did it and I just liked it instantly. But because of the trade I was in, I was a chef, it just fitted in so well. But I never thought I would get to this extent. It crept up on me so fast. It's turned into me doing it on Thursdays to Saturday, to Thursday to Sunday, to Thursday to the next Thursday. And um, I never, never saw it was going to get this bad. I never thought I'd be in jail. The whole time we've been talking, Andy, who's a slim Pākehā man with a neat reddish-coloured beard, has been clutching at a leaflet about the drug court. You read this booklet, and I thought, at first I felt that it was written for me. This one here is, um, if I get acceptance of drug court up here today, it's a participant agreement. Um, and there's uh, 1 to uh, 26 rules. Uh, rule number one is to be open and honest at all times in the drug court, um, including if I breach this agreement. So I've been told that if I do say relapse out there, that when I come up in front of the judge, I tell the judge that I relapsed. I don't try to hide it. Um, and then that'll actually go towards being beneficial, like, hey, he's, he's coming here, he's relapsed, and he's saying sorry for it. Um, so that's like number one, to down to um, 23, say, is if I exit the drug court, either by choosing to leave or being ordered to leave, I'll return to regular court for sentencing, which will mean I'll go back and have to do that nine months. Um, and this other one that I've got from me is just like the basic um, handout, which I've actually had in my cell um, at Mount Eden, like this, on the wall. So I've kind of every day woken up to just looking at it. Drug treatment services say it's ideal to get help for a drug addict as soon as they realise they want to change, because sure. next week they could be back to their old ways. 
Andy says the last time he hit rock bottom, there were no places in rehab. He was put on a waiting list and then lost momentum. I asked him what he'll do if he doesn't get into the court today. You either turn to the gangs and either join up to a gang so that you can feed your addiction and not be such an addict in the eyes of the underworld. Like, um, when you're an addict and you're not a drug dealer or in the gangs, they call you, like, a, you're a junkie or a peasant. And, and for me, I never really got to that level because I sold drugs. But, yeah, the, if I don't get into drug court and I don't get off meth, I think that's the next stage. Our time's up now, and a few minutes later, Andy's escorted out of the cells and upstairs to the dock in courtroom seven to make his case for getting into the drug court. When Andy arrives upstairs, he sees his mother in the public gallery. She's been there all afternoon watching the other participants. The judge's interrogation of Andy's story about why he wants to change sounds more like some curly questions in a job interview than a court session. You've made an application to come into the court? Yep. Can you tell me why you want to come into this court? Um, I just want to um, address my drug problem and um, get into a rehab. And what do you think it's going to take to address your drug, drug problem, as you call it? The drug court team have already um, combed over Andy's file that morning and after seeing him present his case, to his relief, decide he's suitable to be a participant in the court. If you really want to change, then this is the place to be. So I'm going to invite you now to sign that participant agreement. Can yep. someone, is that OK to give him a pen? And we can do that. May I approach your honour? His conviction doesn't disappear, though, and he will be sentenced again if he completes his treatment successfully in about 18 months' time. That sentence will take into account any work he's done to address his addiction and make amends with the victims of his crime. If he graduates, he'll avoid jail. Are the drug courts just a soft-touch, get-out-of-jail-free card for those not wanting to end up behind bars? 40-year-old Craig, who's spent 25 years in and out of prison, says for him, getting into rehab in the court was anything but. He says the hardened prisoners he was surrounded by on the inside saw it as something only for the weak. You know, they're like, you know, what, you know pussies go to rehab and, um, you know... It's not keeping it real, but, um, yeah, drug court, I'd say, yeah, I mean, only the brave will, will put their hand up and say, I need to, need to change and go to drug court. Dropping the staunch reputation he'd built up over the years in favour of drug rehab meant Craig had to leave the mainstream part of the prison for segregated protective custody. In prison all my life, I've never been on segregation, and when I went to prisons last time, I pulled myself away from all my friends because I knew that I'm at a changing point in my life and I signed on to segregation. Um, I ended up um, getting my jaw broken because um, people weren't happy. And But it's what I had to do to get away from people, you know, because... What, so what was happening there? So you, someone beat you up because you asked to go on segregation? Pretty much, yeah. So what's going on there? They don't. Why don't they want you to do that? Um, because segregation's for someone that's molested a child or, or you're scared and all that sort of thing. And because of the uh, life that I lived, all of the um, all the people I associated with were, you know, they were gang members and, and they were people who, you know, they looked at me because I, I had a reputation of my own and going on to protection or segregation, is, it was like, you know, what the f*** 
you do, Rick, you know. And um, I was like, no. And I actually walked around with a, with a towel around my head just to, because I was, it was a little bit ashamed. You know, I was ashamed of it at first. Mm-hmm. But then I, I realised this is, you know, this is my life. I'm going to change it. Craig began using drugs when he was nine years old and was first charged with a crime at 14. I was abused by a guy and he went to jail for 10 years in the end for the abuse and uh, that I thought if I can do this I'll be able to go into jail and um, give him a hiding. You know? And I didn't see him, he was in a men's prison, I was in a, in a child's prison and yeah, it was really messed up, bad situation. Yeah, But it opened the doors to pretty much the rest of my life going in and out of jail and, and using drugs. He's nearly finished 18 months in residential rehab and he says learning about his emotions and triggers has been intense and confronting. Judge Emma Aitken agrees the drug courts are far from a holiday from prison. We try to get underneath the use and abuse and often what we find is quite profound trauma unresolved grief and loss issues. We often find backgrounds of quite significant neglect. So we identify as best we can not just uh, what is the appropriate addiction treatment pathway, but, but what else is happening for this individual. And armed with that, the participant embarks on the drug court journey. It can take anything from 12 to 18 months. It's a three-phased program, Uh, so in phase one, uh, the focus is on treatment. In phase two, the focus tends to be more on addressing the the drivers of the addiction, if you like, those underlying issues. And also in phase two, they will be required to do many, many hours of community service. Uh, They will be required to apply to attend a restorative justice conference with their victim, And if the victim chooses to attend, that is an extraordinarily difficult but extremely important part of holding the offender accountable, really, for their behaviour, which is really what the drug court does in a very significant way, in my view. There'll be a lot of other things perhaps happening in in phase two, but it's in phase three that they really start to look at transitioning back into the community. And certainly Judge Tremuin and I have a personal goal that every one of our graduates will be in either work uh, or training. Uh, At the end of that, if you complete the drug court programme, you do not get sentenced to prison. One of the more demanding aspects of being in the court is frequent drug testing. And there's a lot of time taken in court discussing samples that are suspicious. He fails to produce on the 31st of August. I think this is the one where he says he dropped the container. And then on the 14th of September, we have a first sample that is too hot and the suggestion that's maybe due to an infection. Participants have to go to a drug clinic to be tested at random five times every fortnight. But Judge Aitken says there's currently a gap in the drug testing regime, which makes it easier to cheat. At the moment, when a participant goes to a testing centre to give a urine sample, they're not watched directly as they do it. She wants to make it tougher to swap out samples. The sad reality is that the drug or alcohol dependent offender is not in a place of honesty, and they are used to manipulating uh, and slipping and sliding around uh, family and other uh, welfare providers to get away with using. So they are used to responding deviously, finding every trick in the book to avoid uh, having to own up to using uh, drugs or alcohol. 
can they actually physically try and trick the test and switch samples? Do yes. people try that sort of thing? Yes, they, they, can, they can substitute someone else's urine for themselves. We've had people um, turning up with little thermoses of urine. Uh, you can buy synthetic urine. We had one in court the other day just to have a look at it, a, a device that would assist uh, a male participant uh, in appearing to be passing uh, synthetic urine. So a whole little device set up with a a little pack uh, that you wear next to your skin uh, that feeds into a device uh, that looks very real, uh, out of which a very fake sample of urine will be passed. One of our difficulties is that we do not have direct observed testing. So our participants go into the testing centre and they will go into the area uh, with the toilet and they'll be given their little container and there are mirrors on the wall and but their back is turned uh, to the observer and the door is sort of left uh, ajar so there is scope uh, to substitute uh, urine uh, that is not your own Judge Aitken says the Ministry of Health thinks making participants pass their sample in full view of the person collecting it might affect the therapeutic relationship but she says corrections and even sports anti-doping agencies use directly observed testing, and she's worried the testing could be undermining the authority of the courts in the eyes of offenders. The health ministry declined to be interviewed because the drug courts are still under evaluation. But the Justice Minister, Andrew Little, says he backs the court. I'd certainly be wanting to support the court in doing whatever they need to do to be effective. So, look, I'm happy to take that issue up and talk to both justice and health officials to see what can be done about it. In the end, the alcohol and other drug courts are only effective if the, if the monitoring is in place and it's real and it is, you know, it's genuine tests of whether or not people are still using or there's drugs in the system. Judge Aitken says a more robust testing regime could save money by cutting down court time spent quibbling over inconclusive samples and the need for retesting. Official briefings to the Justice and Health Ministers obtained by Insight show one of the court's more significant stumbling blocks is its high cost. The drug court currently costs about $5.8 million a year, about $5 million more than if offenders went through the regular court. The briefing suggests the extra spending is largely offset by what would have been spent keeping the offenders in prison. In the nearly six years the court's been running, 495 people have been accepted into it, with 40% graduating. For many of the participants, it's the first time they or the court have taken a look at not just what their offending is, but why they're doing it. But such a personalised approach to justice is expensive. If it's to continue, the drug court must have lasting effects on stopping reoffending, and that's yet to be proved, despite several favourable evaluations. The previous government's Justice Minister, Amy Adams, was in favour of the courts, but extended the pilot because she wanted to see more research on whether it keeps offenders out of prison long term. The Justice Minister, Andrew Little, is also keen on the courts, but he's in no rush to push them through without the evidence. Part of the challenge is that with an intensive therapeutic court like the alcohol and other drug court is that the volume of people going through it is reasonably small. So I think the advice is that we need to have a good number to properly evaluate the impact that the court is having. 
A decision on whether to make the drug courts a permanent part of the justice system is due in the first half of next year. That programme was written and presented by me, Teresa Cowie, with technical production by Phil Bench. If you'd like to discover some great listening, you can head to our page at rnz.co.nz slash insight, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week on Insight, Johnny Blades looks at Papua New Guinea's road to hosting the APEC Leaders Summit as it teeters on the verge of social breakdown. And that's all from Insight for today. Join us again next week.